All right, Laura. Oh, we have Sonia Livingstone today. Oh, gosh. I mean, she's always great. She's always great. And, and, and she's funny and she's so brilliant. And she brings up so many important questions. And, and just my experience with her throughout the years has always been that when it comes to kids and tech, she makes you start to ask questions that you had never even considered before. And so especially in this interview, I'm excited where she starts to talk about uh, about digital rights and the work she's doing with the EU around around digital rights, because I think a lot of people don't even understand that issue well enough to to think about it. And she makes it so um, approachable and clear. I 100 percent agree with you. Um, You know, she is one of the most respected and well-deserved, say, uh, academics working in this field and I think the kind of the secret source with Sonia is that this isn't just done from an academic 100 foot viewpoint she goes and she spends time with young people she does focus groups you know she's been involved in some of these studies like EU kids online and then global kids online where they're really listening and getting the voice of young people to really try and affect change at a policy level so yeah we get into some really deep stuff here but as you say there are some things really thought-provoking things here and I think you know the the, the takeaway for me which you know I'm sure people will, will, will really find interesting is that you know make Making us all individually look at our responsibility as well as where tech has responsibility. This is a great conversation. Absolutely. I promise anyone listening that you will uh, walk away from this uh, interview thinking differently about kids and technology, at least in one part. I mean, maybe not completely, but certainly there'll be new ideas and, and new thoughts that you've never that you've never considered before. Let's press play. If you've tuned into our podcast before, you will know myself and Jordan never take things too seriously. Um, This week, we thought we'd invite on an actual serious academic to add a bit of professionalism. So we're absolutely delighted to introduce Professor Sonia Livingston. Wait, wait, does that mean I don't get counted as a serious serious (laughs) academic? Is that that what you're implying? I I think he's a professor. Yeah. Oh, there we go. Okay. How are you both doing at the moment with this, with the strange situations that we're in in the world? Well, it gives us lots of times just to kind of sit at our desk and um, think or write or Zoom people and have interesting conversations with folks all around the world. But uh, it's a pretty weird time. I, I, I mean, it's it's certain it's certainly weird. I just I just started teaching back in the classroom, and uh, um, and that's a that's a whole strange situation of trying to teach with a mask on and with people so far away. And uh, um, and then you have the situation at home, and I feel like the situation at home with the four kids here uh, um, all we ever talk about with the kids is Wi-Fi that's it that's the, every conversation is 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 why isn't the Wi-Fi working right right when are you gonna turn the Wi-Fi back on why is the Wi-Fi off why can't it's just Wi-Fi 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 all the time um, and you know what's interesting is about the like the you know I do all these these interviews with the media and I'm always making sure to point out the like um, the, the, the socioeconomic gap in Wi-Fi access. So I feel terrible because then my kids are complaining when they already have the best Wi-Fi in the world, right? Like they're already in the top 1% of Wi-Fi and they're like, but it's not 
perfectly fast enough. <laughs> yeah, but that, but they're right, and everyone is fighting for it, and suddenly everyone needs to use it so much more than we ever did before. It's, it's the same in our house. So we've got the super fast broadband, but all of us stuck at home and trying to to teach from home and trying to work, and, and then having games being played and everything. It's just those same arguments and same conversations. But hey, we should be grateful that at least we do have it. Exactly. Yeah, and you're allowed to play games because that's your work. So that's yeah. indeed. Yeah. Um, well, that's a perfect segue. Let's, let's take a pause there. But um, we'd like to introduce you properly. Sonia, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Ah, sure. So I'm a professor of social psychology at the London School of Economics and Political Science. And I have been researching how families and children have engaged with the digital world uh, for a long time now, since that meant time shifting TV on the VCR and the fascinating question, where do you put the home computer when it comes home? And uh, the tech keeps changing, family life keeps changing. So there's always more work to do. We, of course, want to talk about your, your, your new book, Parenting for a Digital Future, which I'm a little bit envious of. After I read it, I thought, I thought man, there's so many things I want to go back and rewrite in my own book now. Um, but, <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, that's often the case. And that's a good thing, that, I guess. But, bef- but before we do that, we want to talk about... Um, some. I mean, you've done some pretty amazing work on, on young people's digital rights. I wonder if you could tell us a bit, a, a bit about that before, before we jump into the book. Uh, absolutely. I've spent you know, so long thinking about children's risks and opportunities and really trying to kind of argue for a, a balanced approach to what the uh, digital world can offer young people. And focusing on the, dig- on the question of rights has been a kind of newer um, preoccupation. And I would say a pretty steep learning curve for me because I'm a, like I introduced myself, I'm a psychologist, not a lawyer. Uh, So in the last five to 10 years, I've talked more to lawyers than I ever have in my life, trying to kind of understand the legal framing of rights. Um, And there's also, you know, there's all kinds of ways of of thinking about rights, including kind of um, political and more critical and sociological. But really, um, I came to the idea of thinking about children's online risks and opportunities in terms of rights in order to make the normative shift, in order to not only do the research that says this is how it is, but to kind of help argue for this is how it could be better and this is how it should be and what should be done. And what I like about the rights framing is, you know, I work within the, um, in relation to the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, which um, Mm -hmm. nearly every country in the world has ratified, but Mm -hmm. uh, I'll give the most important one. And the one where all Sorry. the uh, tech companies are headquartered. It's a real, it's a real challenge because you know most of the world has said. Um, actually, uh, everyone I know, pretty much in the US, also thinks children's rights are important. Um, but in the US, uh, the reason I understand it's not being ratified is this whole question about children's rights versus parents' rights, which is a really interesting question. When um, I'm now working in relation to parents trying to do the right thing for their kids. Yeah, anyway, and, I, right, and, I, yeah. and I and I will say that that while while I'm certainly all for ratifying it, I like to remind my children that it hasn't been ratified every time they say things aren't fair at home. 
Yeah, well, I hope I'm with your kids now. I hope they keep saying things are not fair. Anyway, I'm sure you talk to them. But if, you know, when it comes down to it, it says treat kids right, treat them fairly, listen to what they have to say, make a balanced decision. Yeah, it's not so. It's not so. But you know, in the online world. We haven't been having those conversations, and that's why the rights yeah. thing is really, you know, we have to have those conversations, including with kids, about what the digital world should be like, because that's their world, especially now. I, 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 absolutely, and of course, and of course, it, it's so, sort of um, such an interesting struggle between thinking about their safety, their freedom, how to protect their data, how to think about the long term, uh, the, the long term implications of, of living so much of your childhood on a, on what's essentially you know on a pla- a landscape that's almost completely digital. Or I mean, I don't know what percentage of their lives is digital, but at least right now, it seems to be pretty much all of it. <laughs> It, it is huge, but I think, you know, for me, one of the really kind of key lessons of, of COVID-19 is that young people, children also want to live their lives face to face. They also want in, in-person connections. They want to go outside. They, you know, they, they're complaining about living life online um, constantly, I think, as much as the adults are. And, you know, there is some kind of really... Um, a sad cases emerging of kids who haven't been able to go outside, who haven't yeah. you know got that much to do. Um, they're getting frustrated. So yes, they are living their lives are more digital than any generation ever. But that doesn't mean they want it to be only digital. And so there are lots of things to balance. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. Um, I mean, certainly, you know. I've, I've been part of this this work with you um, doing yeah. some workshops and things and it's just been yeah. so fascinating coming from the tech side and, and coming from the, the business side of things yeah. you know I, I know that you know Roblox where I'm based is obviously very much about children safety privacy um, and wanting it to be a healthy and safe place for young kids to be able to have socialize yeah. um, but you know because of my my career working in online safety and kind of the other side as well you know mm-hmm. that balance of um respecting what young people want but also then making sure that those safeguards are in place around them because yeah. they, you know we all have that collective responsibility to keep them safe well i mean laura you and i have been in lots of um online safety events over the, over the years and i think um no one least of all me is going to argue that you know, kids should not be safe and so on. But one of the things I like about thinking about rights is it really elaborates all the things that children have a right to um, online as well as offline. And without in any way kind of undermining the effort to protection, it puts it in balance. So we see, um, um, and, and, and there's so many conflicts online. So yes, children should be safe online, but they should also be able to have access to any information they want, just like adults, except information that is directly harmful. They should be able to go out and express themselves and meet people. Um, just like they do um, offline. There's no reason to limit their rights online. But of course, as soon as we say things like that online, we think, oh my God, there's the pornography, there's the strangers, there's the, oh no, all the dangers, and we want them to be more constrained online than offline. And I, so for me, a rights framework is really helpful in just reminding me, you know, they, they, the rights apply everywhere. And the UN yeah. is beginning to agree. You know, it's kind of, it hasn't said 
internet access is a right, but it has said all the rights offline apply online. It's one world, it's one child, it's, you know, the rights are the rights and they should be upheld. I mean, do you have any speculation for, for you know, for, for why, why we seem to think it's so different, right? Um, I mean, that's always sort of puzzled me. I mean, I thought you just said that really well, this idea that we don't even want to give them the same, the same freedom online as they have uh, uh, offline. Why, why is that? Why is it so scary? You know, I, I, I never really believed the whole like, oh, just because it's new, it's so scary. Because there's plenty of new things that we don't, uh, we don't approach with, with that level of fear. Well, I, having talked to parents for their book, um, in a way, I think they fear whatever they didn't have in their childhood. So it's not everything new, but, you know, the things that seem important to a child, technology is clearly important to our children. And though when you, and, and what they, what so many of the parents said is when they look back at their childhood and, you know, the technology was primitive or there wasn't very much, or it wasn't, it wasn't the same kind of huge um, complexity of, of that it is today. Um, so that that's part of what makes it scary. I have yeah. to say, I don't think that um, mass media headlines help because <laughs> they do, they create so much panic. And, you know, they don't only create panic and make parents feel that, you know, they're really, you know, all those headlines, there's a pedophile in your child's bedroom or the internet is awash with pornography. Or, you know, when I touch children, most have not had um, really, you know, most have not had a bad experience and many have not had even a risky experience. Um, yeah. And I keep saying that because people have this very kind of exaggerated view of how of how um, scary the world is. But the other thing the headlines do is they also blame the parents. You should be watching your child every minute. Right. If anything goes wrong, you're the one that gave them the technology. You're the one that wasn't watching. So parents feel, um, you know, kind of guilty and anticipation of something going wrong, that they should be like on top of their child the whole time, which is why, you know, the child's right to privacy is actually becoming one of the really contentious and important rights today. Yeah. It is. I remember, um, you know, going years back when we first sort of started working together, Sonia, about the work you did on the EU Kids Online project. Mm-hmm. And of course, some of those things you're talking about, those conversations with um, children and parents mm-hmm. across Europe. And I know now that's actually global kids online, I believe. And, and right. so I know that, that that sort of research is still ongoing. And, and yeah. I think you just had some come out quite recently. Were there any kind of highlights or things coming out of that that, that you feel have changed or are significant? Well, the EU Kids Online Network, so our kind of big achievement really was to survey um, European children. We surveyed 25,000 um, European children in 2010. Uh, it's a measure of how long it took us to get the funding together, that it, we didn't survey 25,000 children again until t- um, uh, with the report just came out uh, this year, 2020. Um, most of the risk figures are up. What's, um, and that's super depressing and worrying, but also um, access is up. Children's personal ownership of technology is up. Their skills are a bit, their digital skills are a bit higher. And what we've always found in our research is the risk goes up when the opportunities go up. And that's the hard thing for parents and I think for policymakers to get their head around. Because if you if you try to minimise the risks, um, you lose the um, opportunities and children don't develop 
skills and then they don't become resilient and they don't figure it out for themselves. And I don't know how they're ever going to become, you know, competent adults online because nothing happens at at 18 that just makes the difference. So, (laughs) you know, parents know in their heart and educators do as well that kids have got to have the experience and, you know, fall over online, make some mistakes online, um, uh, pick themselves up and figure it out themselves online. You know, all those things that we understand in the playground, they've got to happen online, but um, it's it's too scary. So, yeah, so risks are, are the thing that is up. And then in Global Kids Online... Uh, where we've gone beyond Europe and we're really trying to focus on getting um, doing research in uh, low-income countries. Uh, there are just so many other factors. You know, working within a European frame is one thing, but um, it's brought, really brought home to me how important the internet is as a source of information for many yeah. children in low-income countries where they don't have the books instead. They don't have the library around the corner instead. Maybe they don't even have a school um, with teachers, but now, bizarrely, really, they may have access for a time to a mobile phone that can give them access to the world's information and the best libraries in the world. And, you know, so I think the right to information um, in a low-income country is something really, you know, it's, kids are not just looking up game sheets and, you know, fun stuff and football scores. They are They're looking up health information. They're looking up you know, information about how that helped their family kind of cope and survive in difficult circumstances. And that's just so interesting to think, how do we, how do we enable that more? Yeah. 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 That's a, that's a great, um, a lot of great, a lot of great things to think about there and, and, and great points. Um, but I want to move, I want to move on to the book if I can, is that okay? I mean, I don't want to minimize it, but I want to, I want to talk about the book. I have it, I have it right here. Oh, they can't see the video, but. (laughs) I hope not because I have this awful, awful uh, webcam. (laughs) (laughs) No, but I, I I do want to talk about the book. It's called parenting for a digital future. Um, and, um, you know, one of the things that I found really fantastic uh, uh, about it is really, I think, the the, the sociology uh, lens, right? Like, there's so much that's sort of a phenomenological description of what it means to parent right now, and it, and, and it, it describes that with. Um, you know the actual experience with all the variations across different uh, d- different people, different kinds of people, um, and similarities, of, uh, 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 of course. And I think that you know it's so different than I, I've I've, a, I've read every single one of uh, I shouldn't say every single one of these books about <laughs> parenting and digital, but probably more than most people have, right? And um, <laughs> and and it, it was it was really um, refreshing to read one that was really sort of describing what's the what 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 is the situation rather than than being um, completely prescriptive. I mean, there's a little bit prescriptive in, I think in, in, in your book, but, but mostly I think it's very, it's very, it's very descriptive. And I was thinking that must be so useful to so many parents because just to, just to see the shared experience, um, just to see, um, to really think about how everybody I think is confronting the same issues, but confronting them in very different ways and making sense of them in ways that are, that are unique. So, so that was, that's sort of my, um, my, my, my fawning, um, 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 appreciation, uh, <laughs> um, for the book. I don't know. Do you think I described, did I describe it fairly? Um, <laughs> yeah, yes, absolutely. I think, um, and thank you for, uh, saying such nice things about it. It was, um, 
I, I, and I kind of hope you can tell it was a book researched and written with a lot of commitment and kind of commitment to really um, getting inside homes and understanding parents' perspectives. And that was partly because um, I've been in so many meetings where people kind of wave their hand and talk about parents should do this and parents should do that and parents know this or don't know that or... And, you know, firstly, it began to sound to me so high-handed, like, where are the parents? What did they have to say? Mm-hmm. And then it began to sound so homogenizing, like, you know, excuse me, parents are not all the same. They don't all know this or understand that or not understand this. And then quite often that talk is implicitly quite critical, like parents are failing to do this. Parents should do that better. Parents are, you know, not playing their part in allowing too much screen time or letting kids play games too much and then they're not ready for school or, you know, whatever it is. It was just seemed so. So I I should mention my um, co-author, Alicia Blumrath, at this point. So Alicia and I really wanted to... um, uh, uh, go into homes and just listen to parents and then be a kind of conduit for their voice and what they wanted to say. And there was a point in the middle of the book where, um, in the middle of writing it, where we just felt they're all so different. We can't say anything, we can't write this book because every family is so different. And then we, um, you know, kind of worked harder on finding some commonalities because, as you say, Jordan, the parents in some ways are facing some very similar challenges, even though they respond differently. But I I hope one of the empowering things for parents is just to see that that lots of different responses are possible. You don't have to always look over your shoulder and say, they're doing it that way, so I should feel guilty if I'm not doing it that way, and I must try harder to be like everyone else, because people are making sense of this digital world in ways that make sense to them in their world, in according to their values, their priorities, their interests. And yeah, so lots of different ways of living. Jordan and I were talking about this before, about, um, you know, trying to look at how parents are actually dealing with it. Were there, were there kind of a couple of the similarities that you can share with us? Think about parenting practices in terms of three kind of types or three genres, which we called... Uh, embracing uh, a digital future, resisting a digital future, and then finding some kind of balance. And um, it seemed important to say these are not types of parents. So parents might do the, all of these things, or they might have a preference, but they're like they're like practices in the culture and practices that parents can choose from, and they do reflect on their choices quite a lot in the book. You know, why is one might be an embracing parent and one might be more inclined to resist when they find a way to balance together. Um, but it's also it also varies according to parents' own interests and expertise. So we had some really geeky parents or parents of really geeky kids and they love the technology. I can think of uh, maybe one I, I, I've talked about a lot, Danny, who just embrace the whole digital world the geeks will inherit the earth she said you know the 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 digital is the future and i i want to get my kids there and she kind of you know equipped the house she wired up the computers she got the kids all um uh playing minecraft she set them challenges you know she loved it and and so the kids loved it and that's so different from parents who are saying well you know we're more sporty we want to kind of have the outside world as well. 
Um, but we understand they like technology for downtime, even maybe for family downtime when the family can kind of come together after everyone doing different things outside all day. Not this is obviously pre-corona. Um, <laughs> families could all go outside and do lots of different things. But, you know, for some families, that was the norm. And then for them, technology was about coming back and kind of sitting on a sofa together and sharing something on maybe something on the telly, but people might be on their phone as well. And so so different kinds of balance. But maybe one thing that um, uh, to kind of conclude this point is to say about balance. Um, so you may not know that I do quite often try to do yoga and I try quite often try to stand on one leg um, in, or do the balancing poses. I am rubbish at balancing, but what I've learned from yoga is balancing is hard. Balancing is like constant, effortful, adjusting this way, adjusting that way. It's not just doing the thing in the middle. It's it's take and parents are always kind of watching their kids, you know, has that been too long? Is this okay? Are they coping with that? Should I do a bit more of the other? It's effortful and exhausting. And that's what we saw parents doing. Amazing. I'm just sitting here and it's just kind of occurred to me. I'm like, I wonder if you did the same questions with myself and Jordan. You know, we're, we're both tech savvy, work in the business. Yeah. We both love playing video games, but we just always feel like we're losing the battle with our kids. So <laughs> right. it'll be a really interesting process for us to go through. Wait, speak for yourself. I'm not, I'm not losing, I'm not losing the battle. I'm winning. I'm winning. I'm winning the battle, but I agree. It's like yoga. It's really hard. It's really, you know, it's, this is, I, I hope no one thinks it's easy. I hope no one thinks it's a... a, a so another of my, my colleagues, Amanda Third, has just written a book um, with her colleagues called Control Shift. And in that book, they argue, let's give up on these metaphors. It's not a battle <laughs> with our kids. It's parents can't... Control is the wrong idea. Um, and in our book, we work with the idea of what um, Tony Gibbons has called the democratic family. You know, parents are trying to... Um, they're not, they're not the kind of autocratic, you know, you will do what I said because I said so kind of parents. Oh, no one wants to be that parent. I know an extremist, we kind of get there sometimes, but no one, no one wants to be, the, we want to be the kind of parents. And parents want to, you know, who listen to their kids, who respect their children's views and their different interests and try to kind of find a way of bringing it together. But, it, um, but it's, it's demanding um, and one of the arguments we make is that's because somehow we've made so much of what we're trying to do with our kids about the technology, yeah. you know, what what they want to learn or who their friends are or how they spend their time suddenly all become a discussion about technology. Um, we had those wrangles with the kids 20 years ago or 40 years ago. It was just, you know, you can't go out looking like that or you can't, you know, who are your friends or, you know, where are you going exactly? So there's always been those wrangles, but now parents try to do it without being autocratic. And the technology makes it all so much harder because when the kid's on a phone, you can't see who their friends are. You can't even see what they're looking like or what they're, you know, so it's, it's hard for parents. I appreciate that. So um, 
I, I think we have we have we have one one more one more question for you. You know, we were when we were preparing uh, to talk to you about this, we were we were both Laura and I were we're, think, we're thinking we we've been we've been doing this for a long time. In fact, all three of us have been have been doing this for a re- a really long time. And and are we bored? Like <laughs> like I, you know like sometimes when I'm doing research, I go back and I find and I find. I find books from uh, um, again twenty, thirty years ago, and I go. They were saying this, almost the same thing, slightly different technological context, but almost but making making the the, the same arguments. And, and I just I, I feel like like are we are we getting are we getting anywhere? Are we like 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 where are we going to be uh, in the future? Where do we put our focus so we make sure that that twenty years from now it's not the same conversation? It's it's not it's not the same concerns, or maybe we should just shift all together to a whole different conversation and maybe stop talking about screen time <laughs> <laughs> we, we all agree on that one yeah um so when i began the eu kids online work um uh it was kind of informally um dubbed um a kind of repeat of a, a really famous study that was done at lse in the late 1950s by um, Hilda Himmelweit and her colleagues, which was when television first arrived. Um, And that book, which is called Television and the Child, was incredibly influential in my um, work and lots of others. Um, And every now and again, I go and I read it again. And I I have exactly what Jordan just said. So it was um, published in 1958 about the arrival of television. And so much of it could have been written today. And the arguments that parents are having with their kids and the worries about the content and the violence and the is the schoolwork getting done so we could either say we're getting nowhere because we keep making the same arguments or we could say uh, these are the life struggles and actually contrary to some of the um, hyperbole not everything is changing all the time. These are the life struggles and we have to research them for now. We have to research them now, thinking about whatever today's digital tech companies are and the struggles there, what the parents' aspirations are. Um, you know, the, so many things about families are changing. I'm researching with families of all different um, ethnicities and cultural preferences, which wasn't the case then. So the story changes. Um, but yeah, sometimes I think we just keep needing evidence for now. Because if I went into a policy meeting and said, well, we've got this great study from 1958, which tells us all we need to know. No one's <laughs> listening to me, right? No one's going to, you know, it's, you know, if, if I interviewed, if I interviewed kids and parents three years ago, people think it's out of date. So yes. there's something we have to keep but but in some ways the story is changing and maybe one thing that is really strikingly different from before is that i think until about the last few years all that all those ways in which children engaged with um, media it was sort of optional it was leisure it was they yeah. could take it or they could leave it you could you could be a parent who says i'm turning it off we're not having it and what we really understood i think during covid but going forward, I think forever, is there is no turning it off anymore. There is no going back anymore, you know, unless um, a, a social scientists should never try to predict the future, it always goes <laughs> wrong. Um, but I think the, the transformation now is that the kids have got to engage with it. And yeah. that's why, you know, we've got to help them make it safer and we've got to make it them more digitally literate. 
and we've got to address the kind of you know the wider ways in which society deploys technology um, because uh, it's not optional anymore. Uh, definitely going to have to send me that link to that 1950s report. It sounds amazing. <laughs> I'm sorry to say, Laura, there is no link. It's like a book. Scooby, Scooby, Dooby, Scooby, Doo, and Little Shaggy, Doo. Yeah. All right. All the very bye best. Bye. Thank you. Bye bye. Oh, yeah. And if I. Tell you once, and I tell you once again.